Paul becomes so zealous for Judaism that he begins to persecute the early church. And in his mind, he's doing the right thing. He's standing up for God. And sometime after that, as he's on the road to Damascus to go and persecute more Christians, he is confronted by the Lord and he repents and then he, his zealousness is led to the gospel. He ends, ends up becoming zealous for the gospel. It seems that at some point, he equated the law with God's glory. But after his conversion, he realized that that was not possible. And we know that because to the Galatians, he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. So he goes from the persecutor of the early church to the founder of the first multi-ethnic church where Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich or poor, slave and free are treated as equals. From Acts 9 to Acts 28, from Acts 9 to the end of the book, we see Paul living out what he believes. We see him doing what he knows. We see him carrying out this message, the main message of Acts, that is that the kingdom of God has come onto all of the earth for the, for the, to the, come onto the earth to all of the believers so that they would be empowered to testify that Jesus Christ is Lord and that salvation is only found in him. This was Paul's greatest conviction. The question today is, is it our conviction as believers and followers of Christ? Is it our greatest conviction? Do our firm beliefs motivate us to act out on it? What do our daily actions say about what we believe? So are we, are you, are you preparing? Are you studying? Are you praying? Because the church is God's workmanship, right? We know this because Paul says this in Ephesians 2.10. The church is God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared beforehand for us to do. But that doesn't mean that we just wait until the Holy Spirit catapults us into the presence of someone who needs the gospel. We do know that he does that throughout scripture, right? The prophet Ezekiel constantly talks about being transported to different areas and having visions from God. And so I'm not saying that can't happen. What I'm saying is that we don't wait idly, just waiting for the Spirit to move us and force us to go. It also isn't good enough to just attend church one time a week. Now, what we have to do is we have to follow in our priest's footsteps, in Jesus' footsteps. We have to move from the sidelines and go and tell people the gospel and be the gospel. Because when we prepare for that, we actually make ourselves available to the Spirit, which is what Paul did. And that's what made uh, the Spirit bring some very fascinating results. As a matter of fact, when Paul was, uh, after he has this confrontation with the Lord, he can't see for three days. He's blind for three days. And so God at some point goes to Ananias and says, Ananias, go to this man. He's praying. I imagine that Paul is there praying, asking God to forgive him for what he's done, for persecuting his people. And so Ananias is like, no, I'm not going there. Do you not know what he's done? He's evil. I'm not going there. And God's like, oh, you will go because he is going to be my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. And where we find our passage today, Acts 17, is that is what we find Paul doing. He's preaching to the Gentiles, to those who aren't Jewish. So in Acts 16, he receives the Macedonian call, which means that then in Acts 17, before we get to our text, he's on his way to Thessalonica with his co-laborer, Silas. Luke tells us that after he explains and proves that Jesus is their Messiah, that many devout Greeks 
and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. And this is a big deal because in that day, Greek women didn't have very many rights. They couldn't own land or inherit it, they couldn't vote, and they couldn't be highly educated, which means they could only attain a very basic amount of knowledge. Luke's inclusion of them demonstrates the gospel's declaration that all people, even women, are worthy of hearing the gospel. This is a groundbreaking move on behalf of the Spirit. This is a revolutionary move from the Spirit for women all over the place for generations to come. The Spirit was using Paul and Silas in innovative ways, and it was all because of their core convictions that led to actions. Their core convictions, their belief in God and his gospel made them available to be used by the Spirit. So then the people that are in Thessalonica that were upset, they find out what's going on in Berea, so then they go to Berea to start more problems. And that's when the believers that are with Paul are like, Paul, just go to Athens, go, go away, just go somewhere else. And that's where we find Paul in chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. So what Paul does first is he goes to the synagogue. He goes to them and he talks to them and he explains that Jesus is the Messiah. But then he also goes to the marketplace. Now, if you remember, the synagogue is where they go to examine and read and study and pray. The marketplace is where philosophers go to dialogue and theorize and talk about something new all the time. So Paul goes there fast. Now, Athens at this point in time, it's being known as the glory of the past because Rome has taken over. So their population is declining, their economy is weak, but intellectually, they still hold all of the power. They are known for their eloquence, for their philosophical training, and for their precision in rhetoric. Arguments, logic, debate, it's their thing. Even today, if you study philosophy, it comes from there. So Paul goes there and he stands before the Epicureans and the Stoics. Those are the different uh, philosophers that are there, there. The Epicureans believe that the greatest good in life is achieved by pursuing pleasure because then you find peace. The Stoics believe that the more that you improve your mental state, the more you will have a good life. So to them, rationalism is everything. So he goes before them, he tells them what he thinks, and they respond by calling him a babbler and a preacher of foreign divinities. And they decide that he needs to go to the Arapagus. Now this is an aristocratic court of about 100 men. They're known for being noble and serious, wealthy, and for being of high status. And their sole job is to review different arguments and then approve them or disapprove them for Athens. And they ask Paul, to tell them his strange teachings. Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now this is a compliment and it's a rhetorical device that Paul is using. And he's doing this to get their attention. This was a known thing to do in the speeches that you would take to these areas. You make a compliment to get their attention for the rest of what you have to say. And that's what he's doing. And this isn't the only rhetorical device that Paul uses. Paul uses rhetorical devices through the rest of his speech because it's his way of showing them what his greatest conviction is. And so to my point, he uses another one in the next verse, and it's called the point of departure. He says, For as I pass along and observe the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. This unknown God, this altar, is Paul's starting point. It's his point of departure. It's the introduction to the rest of his speech. And this God, this altar, there wasn't just one. There was a bunch of these. They were to the unknown gods. It meant the God that they don't know the God that they're ignorant about, 
the God that they have no information about. And so if you take a moment to just think about what the Greeks believed about their gods, they believed that they were immortal. They believed that they were a family that lived on top of Mount Olympus. And they believed that they weren't very different from us humans. They were similar to us in that they got jealous, they made mistakes, they argued, they fell in love. But somehow, even though they were similar to humans, the Greeks believed that they had all the control over them. So they would pray to them and ask them for help and protection. The other thing that they believed was that they could become unhappy with them. And so the Greeks were constantly living to appease them. They would bring them presents and pray to them and worship them in order to make sure they weren't angry because if they were angry, they would punish them. Paul then says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. It sounds like Paul is about to say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you who this unknown God is. I'm gonna give you the information you need, but that's not what he's doing. In the Greek, it actually reads something more like this. In addition to calling you out about worshiping what you are ignorant about, I'm going to give you the knowledge you have admitted to needing about the one true God. This isn't a jab because remember, they've already admitted that they don't know much about this God. And so what he's doing is preparing them for the knowledge about the one true God that he's about to give them. He's not giving them knowledge, the knowledge that they're looking for. He's preparing them, to, he's preparing them for the knowledge that he's going to give them that they don't even realize that they need. Paul knows that their unknown gods, their unnamed gods do not compare to his one true God. So what Paul is doing is he's exposing their need. He sees their ignorance and therefore their need. He calls out their ignorance but only to address their need. In Acts 13, Paul quotes Isaiah 49.6, where it says that the servant of the Lord would be a light to the nations, meaning he would be someone who would bring salvation to all people. And Paul knows that if you identify as, as a Christian, if you make Jesus Lord and Savior of your life, then that means that you are a, a, identifying, your, identifying yourself as being made right before God, as being forgiven, and as being liberated from sin. And that is because of Christ. So if you can identify as that, then you're committing to be a light to the nations with him. For Paul, if it was Christ's purpose, it was the church's purpose. And so as the forerunner of our faith, we should be prepared and empowered by the spirit to speak and tell and live out the gospel with truth and kindness. It's not news to you that there's tons of chaos around us all the time and that at times it feels like it increases by hundreds and hundreds of miles. And so we don't live in a time where we can do anything other but prepare for the times that the Spirit will use us to spread the gospel. You know, it's true that when you identify as something, you can see that in someone else. So if you identify as, in a, as a Christian, you can point Christians out in a crowd even if you don't know them. If you were ever not a Christian, you can also identify non-Christians in a crowd. Usually, you'll identify them because they're committing things that you wouldn't do. They're acting on things you probably wouldn't do. The question is, when we see them, do we see their ungodly actions or do we see their need? Do we see a promiscuous person or someone in search of love? Do we see an addict or do we see someone needing comfort? Do we see someone fleeing a very dangerous situation or someone coming to take all that we, be we believe is ours? Do we see a woman who took life into her own hands as a sinner or as someone who very likely takes that pain with her every single day? What do we see? Do we see an opportunity to show love and hospitality and comfort? 
Or do we see an opportunity to critique? Because we're only called to do the former and not the latter. If we identify as saved and justified and redeemed and sanctified because of Christ, then we're called to be a light and to spread the gospel. And this was Paul's core conviction. This was what he made his whole life about. So he goes to the Athenians and he's direct with them, but he's not condescending, even though he's experiencing this righteous anger. Instead, compelled by the spirit and prepared with truth, he informs them that their unknown gods reveal their greatest need, the knowledge of the one true God. And so to introduce them to this one true God, Paul focuses on how distinct God is from everything that they believe about their gods. In verse 24, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Meaning God is the sole creator of everything that you see. And because he is that, he is superior. He is matchless. So he does not live in human-made temples. This is an argument for the creator versus the created. In verse 25, he goes on and says, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The Greek word there for service refers to worship. And so what Paul is claiming is that God is not like the Greek gods. He's saying that like, unlike their gods who need worship from their people to not be mad, or to not be jealous, God doesn't need that. We worship God out of love for God and he receives it out of love from us, but he doesn't need it. And what Paul is claiming is that because God gives life and breath and everything, because he's the creator and he's the one who does that, it's impossible for him to be dependent on his own creation. Paul is pointing out God's distinctiveness to expose the uselessness of their gods and their idols. His ultimate goal is to see them that God is the one true God and he's the only one who can meet their need. In verse 26, he says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So Paul is declaring that it only takes one, this one powerful God to create the diversity we see around us, the diversity that is represented here at Calvary by these flags. Can we give it up for God? It only takes this one God to make all of us. And so this same God is the one who's powerful enough to determine where we will all live in the times and the boundaries of those places where we will build our lives. And what Paul is doing is highlighting God's sovereignty over humankind and creation. And he's doing this to people who believe that it takes various gods to develop the diversity that they see around them. Paul is emphasizing that it only takes this one God, this one very powerful, true God to, uh, to orchestrate everything that we see around us. He moves on in verse 20, 27 and says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Though God is sovereign, he can be found, is what Paul is saying. He supports that claim by saying, since God created them with the ability to seek him, they have the ability to find him. And he's saying this to the, to the Greeks who believed that, God was, that their gods were so impersonal they couldn't be found, like the unknown gods, or that their gods permeated all of creation. They were in the trees and in people and in the wind. They were in everything. And so why look for them? They're everywhere. Paul is saying 
you can actually find this God. Yes, he is sovereign, but he is not impersonal. He lives among us, he loves us, and he wants relationship with us. So he's emphasizing that God has purposefully made himself known through his sovereign acts of creation, further rendering their gods and their idols as useless. He then goes on in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Paul is now quoting their own Stoic philosophers. This is another rhetorical uh, device. And he does this because the Athenians, they expected you, if you were going to come before them, these specialists in argumentation, then you better quote some of our, uh, some of our people. You better quote the things that we know. And so that's what Paul does. But they would, believe, they would believe that these quotes were saying that this divine reason lived inside of, of us. And Paul is saying, it, we don't live in God and he doesn't live in us. We live by him. We live because of him. So the real question for us right here and right now is who is your unknown God? Who is your unknown idol? Because we can read about the Athenians and learn about their Greek gods and be like, what was wrong with them? Just like when we hear about the disciples and Peter asking dumb questions to Jesus. And we're all like, why would you spend your time doing that when you're in the presence of the king? But the truth is that we can all identify. The Bible reads us. And so what we need to do in this passage is think, don't point the finger at the Athenians, but think, where are my unknown idols? Who are my unknown gods? The people or the things that I elevate before God? Because we all have things we struggle with, right? If we're mature Christians, God has made it clear to us that, hey, you know what? You like food a little bit too much. You like your career a little bit too much. You enjoy money a little bit too much. Don't you know that I am your source? But there are some things that we are unaware of. They're probably the things that it's hard for us to see, the things that are hard for us to admit. Could it be your spouse? Could it be a child? or some other family member? Could it be a political view, something that you think aligns with God's character and therefore it's okay for it to dictate your worldview at all, at, under all circumstances? Could it be your workout habits? Do you think that you can only eat the right foods and those right foods, whatever they are, if they're not there, you're, you're angry? Could it be that it's your education or your career? You spend so much time advancing in those things that you neglect God. What is it? Because it could be these good things, these good people, these blessings from God that become your unknown idols before you're even aware that it's happened. So I ask you again, who or what is your unknown idol, your unknown God? What is it that consumes you? Whose approval do you need? Or is it you? Are you your unknown God? Do you try to control everything around you, your spouse, your kids, your work environment?